I mean, it's in our heart, right? I grew up in a small business family, and so did Dan. Uh, I didn't talk about this earlier, but Dan's father ran a bakery, also a kitchen business. Uh, and you know, he remembers waking up early and helping his father, you know, knead the dough and make the pretzels and everything. And then Wonder Bread moved in and decimated their business, and they had to move. Father had a heart attack and died away. Died, and um, you know, with mine, it's the same thing. You know, it was a great watching. My mother grew the small business in our kitchen. My sister went off and grew a salon. Very successful. Um, brought toys home for me every month. Uh, she, she was really ins inspiring for me to become an entrepreneur. And then she had a falling out with her business partners. And so for her, her business went away just like that too. So for Dan and I both, it's, it's all about empowering. You know, we have a culture of empowerment in Elsham. So we're here to help small businesses scale out of that kitchen. You know, it's very meaningful for us. Hello everyone. Welcome to the Disruptor Studio, where we have in-depth discussions with leaders that inspire innovation, transformation, and greatness. I'm Alex Gonzalez, and I'm excited about another great guest this week, as we have Ben Chestnut, the co-founder and CEO of a fabulous company called MailChimp. Many of you probably already know MailChimp. You might get them your emails. You might be a small business who uses them as your marketing platform. Or you may have heard about the fabulous culture that they have for their employees. And that is a big reason why I wanted to have Ben on the show. The more you hear about MailChimp and their brand and their culture and their vibe, I realize there must be a person behind it that's really driving this amazing culture and brand. And sure enough, there is. As you talk about to Ben and you hear about his kind of creative spark and being design-centered, um, his focus on building cultures of empowerment, and just how he is as a person, you realize so much of Ben's personality is really fueling this culture and brand of MailChimp. So this conversation with Ben was actually filmed in front of a live audience at the very end of 2019, but so much that he says is still so relevant today, and even more so as he talks about his focus on empowering small businesses. So here it is. Ben Chestnut on the Disruptor Studio Live. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Welcome to the Disruptor Studio. And so I'm just loving having you on here. For, for what you do and, and through this, this thing that I think many people know, at least in Atlanta, but maybe, maybe people don't, called MailChimp. And this is a business that is truly, a, it's a bootstrapped business that's worth billions now. I mean, you're the definition of unicorn plus, I would say. Um, and um, you know, I think it was founded in 2001, over $700 million in revenue. Um, and just a story to get there, which we'll get into, amongst many more, it's is just fantastic. Yeah. But, but I think part of it is, is you're approaching business in a unique way, but you are a true business of scale that's making money and creating value. So before we go on, why don't you spend a minute talking about what is MailChimp, for someone who may not know. MailChimp is uh, it's a marketing platform. We're a marketing platform for small business. We're sort of in a state of transition. We were once known as the email marketing uh, brand, and now we're transforming into all forms of marketing. So 
as of May of this year, we launched uh, social marketing, uh, direct marketing, landing pages. Um, our, our brand has sort of uh, won the permission of small businesses to expand into more. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's, a, from the beginning, your influence is really around small business, right? That's kind of that's your right. cornerstone, right? We've always been about small business. And how, where did that come from, that, that small business focus? Why, why, why did you decide to focus on that? Yeah, it's, it's funny. It's, it's something that my co-founder, Dan, and I, we actually didn't know this about each other for, for many years. Uh, we both realized we both grew up uh, in small business families. Uh, I, my mother was an entrepreneur. She ran a, um, a hair salon in our kitchen. Uh, I have since learned that the technical term for that is kitchen titian. <laughs> uh, she, she ran this salon with uh, her sister. Uh, and uh, I grew up uh, with customers uh, from the neighborhood. The house was always filled with customers. Yeah. Uh, and I joke uh, to this day, uh, if, if there was a, a smell to business, it would be cigarettes and hairspray. <laughs> so, that's business. Now, does it smell like cigarettes and hairspray? I go to bar, hairspray? I smell the cigarettes, I'm like, that's business. Does it smell like cigarettes and yeah, hairspray? It needs a little more chip? hairspray, yeah. Okay, yeah. more hairspray. Right. Yeah. Uh, so this was, uh, let's get kind of to the roots of, with MailChimp, because this was, it started as a side hustle, right? That's you didn't right. go in day right. one. I mean, we were laid off from uh, a company in town, a, a .com, back when everybody was laid off yeah. from .coms, back in 2000. And we started off as a uh, web design agency. And you have a, a co-founder who... That's right, Dan. And, and to Dan, who worked with you yeah. at Dan, your part company? Dan, I had hired. I had just been promoted to a, a manager. I was a designer, fresh out of Georgia Tech. And um, I had worked there for about a year, and they promoted me to manager. Uh, and Dan was my first hire, and I suck at screening people, <laughs> I guess, because uh, he was supposed to be my coder. He didn't know how to code. He, he totally <laughs> lied. Uh, I, and I, he told me this like 10 years later. Uh, he had no idea how to code uh, when I hired him. <laughs> and and you, he, just, he just pulled it off then, huh? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, on the first day, they actually placed him right next to my desk, where I probably would have found out that he couldn't code. But I actually was sent on a business trip yeah. uh, for like a week, and he was just scrambling. He was, he was like reading HTML for dummies. Uh, and, and when I got back, I checked his work, and I remember I told him the work was like, from a book, it was so perfect. Right. Like it was the indents, <laughs> the syntax, everything, the commenting. I was like, only books do this. Uh, and it was because he was cramming while I was gone. Yeah, so, so that was like the early years. Uh, and we just sort of had this really good relationship. And then we started the company. How do you, what's the, I guess, the strengths? What's that kind of balance you have as co founders? Yeah. That's, that could be tough. For, for some companies. Yeah, I mean, we, we have this internal motto at MailChimp. It's listen hard, change fast. Yeah. And we joke that he's the uh, listen hard and I'm the change fast. It's a good yin-yang relationship that we have. Yeah. In the early days, um, I was always out there trying to get new business, talking to big clients. Um, I would get that invoice sent out, get that big check. And then maybe two or three weeks later, the client would call for some more work. And I'd say, hey, you know, who are you again? Because uh, I was always chasing the next customer. Right. Uh, and Dan, you know, we put him in charge of customer service and uh, customer success because he could actually remember clients' names and their children's names and their pets' names. Yeah. And he just developed that relationship with customers. So with the you guys, I can't emphasize that the success, for those who do not know about MailChimp that you've had, um, and what was the, kind of that inflection, that scaling point? When did MailChimp no, stop becoming a side hustle, but truly the scaled business they have today? I still feel like we're a side hustle to me. I'm always constantly, <laughs> yeah. constantly working and always, 
you know, doing this. Right. Um, but I think that the, the inflection point that people talk about is uh, when we launched our freemium plan, that was in 2009-ish, it's all a blur to me. Yeah. 2009, 2010, uh, MailChimp launched a freemium plan where you could use us for free up until a certain size of your database, and then we would start to charge you. What we didn't know at the time was that this was like a really magical thing for small businesses who needed a lot of time to kind of grow and test, test the waters. Yeah. We were the first company to really give them that, that permission really to experiment. Yeah. And so a lot of small businesses, um, you know, the sales pipeline for small businesses is like 10 years. You know, right. they grow, they fail, they get a job, then they learn how business works, then they quit, start another business. And all along their MailChimp account is just sort of baking and growing. And then they come back and really fire it up. Wow. Yeah. So the moment that, uh, I mean, I don't even know if there was a moment um, that you were considered a unicorn or this billion dollar company. <laughs> what, 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 what was that? When did that happen? How did you react? Did it change? Because you, you talk yeah. about this still being like a side hustle for you. So It still feels it's, small to me. Yeah. yeah it, 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 I'm constantly being reminded it's, it's not going to go away tomorrow, but I still feel like in an instant right. it can go away. Um, but yeah. Um, to, it was probably just a few years after Freemium. I mean, when we launched Freemium, we might have had 100,000 customers in the system. Uh -huh. And then within one year, it was close to a million. And then we, you know, as we tested our abuse prevention algorithms, we could expand the Freemium offering. And we doubled it the next year. And then we were at 3 million users. And I don't know, we're something like 10, 15 now. Now, um, is it true that you were offered a billion dollars from MailChimp at one point? Yeah. And how was that? And how'd that conversation go at home? <laughs> it, it's not that hard. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you know, people ask me, how do you turn down a billion dollars? You just make make a few hundred million. A billion yeah. isn't that much more. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's easy. <laughs> I mean, for us, for us at the time, we had just we, we felt like we had just sort of like gotten over a big hurdle yeah. with with our people. And we felt like they were ready to really start fighting, really grow. Yeah. And um, this offer came at a time where we just felt like, we don't need it, Dan and I, right. we didn't need it. But our people really want this challenge. They want to grow this company to the next level. Right. And we would, we would stop that if we took the money. So it was really more about, let's let our people run. Let's let them fight. And, and I think, uh, you know, I know when you, you uh, get interviewed, a lot of people ask you about taking outside investment and all that. And, yeah. and I think it's just, just uh, yeah. Just amazing what you've been able to do with the bootstrap. I mean, you're proud about being bootstrapped. I mean, bootstrapped, and, yeah. and, how, and, how, and how do you, what's it, what advice do you give entrepreneurs around that? I mean, is, is it, do you fundamentally believe bootstrap's the right way or is it situational? I, I try not to be judgmental about it. It's, depending on your business model, you might need a little bit of funding up front. For us, it was an interesting time. You know, it was uh, the early days of SaaS. Yeah. Um, nobody was really solving problems with SaaS or for small business. So we had a nice opportunity to go, go it alone. And we just always made lots of money uh, because we were the only people willing to do email. It's a very unsexy business yeah. for small business, which is also very unsexy. And it was SaaS, which was new at the time. No one knew it. No one wanted to touch that. Um, I mean, now it's fancy, you know, cloud. Right. I'll say cloud, but that was not a term back then. <laughs> right. um, so, you know, we were sort of like left alone. Uh, I don't know if anybody would invest in us if they, if they knew about us. Wow. Um, so we were, we were lucky in a way, um, and uh, we were allowed to kind of grow to a point where we just, we just never needed it. Right. Now you've, I mean, you've scaled, you know, I guess uh, fast, and, and and I love how you're, you're, there's a humbleness to you in terms of, hey, this could go away. It feels like it's going away any day. It keeps this drive right. Yeah. 
Um, <laughs> but as you scale, uh, what, what's kind of one of the, what's maybe a mistake? One of the biggest mistakes a CEO you've made as, as, as you've scaled, or maybe a lesson that you've had you've had yourself. Oh, uh, I mean, it's always it always every mistake in my life has been about not listening hard enough. Okay, I wish I could be. I need to be more Dan. <laughs> yeah, every regret I've ever had is because I just I just wish I would have listened. I wish I would have listened to my parents yeah. um, when they told me to get braces when I was young. And now I've got Invisalign. <laughs> it's a pain. Every regret, you know. Right. Uh, it's always not listening, not communicating enough. Yeah. And, and I think for us, also getting laid off in the dot-com bust, when you bootstrap, you kind of, your, your resources are kind of spread thin. And um, you, can, you can get this tendency to run very lean, yeah. which can kind of spread people thin for, you gotta be careful of that, yeah. you know, spreading yeah. people thin too long. And, and, how did, and how did that work for you in terms of going to CEO? I guess, I guess um, you know, one of the, the stories I heard is about you had, uh, maybe early on or, or as you were scaling, having a town hall meeting that kind of went. Yeah. <laughs> kind of went awry. You right, know. so that's definitely my crucible moment. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Are you here to make me cry on stage? Well, you know, if it were, if it gets right. Yeah, well, there's no <laughs> rating. Your, new, the, yeah, your exactly. new approach. Yeah, uh, yeah my, my co-founder and I, we used to have like little all-hands meetings, and they would be maybe 20, 30 people smaller than this room. And, you know, we were really comfortable with it. We would cut up, we would joke. And then the company got to maybe 200 people. It got really hard to do it. So we just stopped. Yeah. Um, and you know, it just sort of creeps in like that. You don't think about it, it just stops and you move on to other things. And then one day we said, you know what, let's have another one of those all hands meetings, like the old style coffee hours. And we said, let's do that. And we sent an email out to everybody. It was really terse, like, oh, you know, next week we're gonna do an all hands. <laughs> and that spooked people, we had no idea. We thought everybody would love the old style all hands. Uh, and it started <laughs> to spook people and the rumors started to spread. Wow. And then I heard um, somebody had this idea, you know, let's do it in the customer service space because our customer service agents, they're always on chat, always um, answering questions. They never have the time to walk over to the coffee hours. So in honor of them, let's go to their space and hold it there. Okay. So we sent an update. We said, we're going to do an all hands and it's going to be in the customer service space. <laughs> and then somebody said, we should allow them to turn off chat. Oh boy. Because, you know, you can't focus. <laughs> So we sent a third update, and all chats would be turned off. Yeah, it's yeah. obvious to you all. Because it was not obvious groaned. to us. They groaned. Yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> we have smart people in this audience. <laughs> so, so the all hands came on the day of the event. Everyone was just, you know, in dread. Also, it was Halloween, so everyone was also in costume. Oh, and, and, you know, none of my, you know, we were joking, we were cutting up, and none of it was resonating. I was, we were bombing. Um, people were asking about long-term strategy. That was something that we never talked about. Right. Uh, and we said, you know, we, we don't need no stinking strategy. We figure things out <laughs> around here. And people were just scared, you know. Wow. Uh, half the room was scared. Half the room was like gung-ho. Let's do this. Um, I still remember one young woman she had this amazing zombie outfit, and I was just petrified of <laughs> her costume. Anyways, it was a, it was a, it was a really tough all hands. I could just feel that it just didn't go well, and I left people more confused than inspired. Uh, and I probably would have just sat in my office, uh, just just wallowing in my tears or something. And but I had a a, a very brave uh, young woman come into my office and tell me to my face, "That wasn't good." 
uh, that was that you, you could probably use some speaker training and maybe some leadership training while you're at it. Wow. <laughs> uh, she's now my uh, VP of comm. She's up here now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you if you criticize me, uh, you know, you're you're more likely to get promoted at Mailchimp. Uh, That's than right. Fired. Yeah. So I, I took uh, Kate's advice. Uh, this was a this was a, a tough, very tough moment for me in, yeah. in my life when it felt like you know I had built this company and gotten all these people to join me, but I wasn't resonating. Nobody really wanted to be around me, to be honest with you. I mean, it was like really, really tough. Uh, they wanted like a, it was time for like a, to level up as a leader. Right. But I was still sort of that startup uh, pirate kind of uh, personality. So it was, it was time to change. It seems like then you took that and you, you truly internalized that and Yeah, that's the thing changes. about you know, bootstrapping a company. You can't sort of say, the investors are telling me to leave. Right. Uh, it's kind of like true. you're there. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. uh, you're just sort of, uh, yeah, you have to evolve. You're, yeah, you're your own choice. boss and have to evolve, yeah. right? Yeah. Right. Well, well, let's let's uh, transition. See, there's no tears in that. Yeah, so, so, so let's go to your childhood. Though. Let's then yeah. go to your childhood nice. and see if you know we could find <laughs> something. But but I actually I loved hearing about. Uh, I'd love for you to share about your early entrepreneurial endeavors. And I think you were like ten, with uh, you know these comic books. You know, what, what, tell oh, us about yeah. that journey of your flip, your flip comic books. Yeah, my my dad was in the military. Yeah, and he would come home uh, with his briefcase. Uh, and I would always, you know, every afternoon my ritual was to snap it open and steal the ballpoint pens, the government issue pens, um, and nobody tell him he would be mortified. Um, but I would also steal his little um, 3M sticky pads. Uh, I think he knew about those. Right. And I would just, I would make cartoons with them and I would sell them on the school bus uh, and sell them in class. Uh, and they were, it was like a very non-scalable business because I had to draw every frame, <laughs> you know, and 10 people with one cartoons and I was just like, you know. Uh, and then I would evolve from there into comic books uh, and I would, you know, do whole storylines and people would ask, you know, I'd get on the bus and it would be scary actually to get on the bus because everybody would say, where's issue two? We're waiting. Uh, it was a lot of pressure on me. Uh, and then I evolved into like 3D comics. Uh, <laughs> oh, wow. You know, I would steal cellophane from my brother's airplane models and I would make the goggles with red and blue and then I would draw, you know, you, when you do 3D, you have to draw an outline in red and then you have to draw the same thing in blue side by side. And anyways, I made those also very non-scalable. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so I, had a, I, had a, I also had a candy business. Yeah. Yeah. And you still, yeah, going, back, go back to your mom being an entrepreneur, is, yeah. is, was that part of that Vibe and yeah, I mean, she was my inspiration. She, she, it was always about, you know, whatever it took to make money. You know, yeah. we, we would serve customers. My job was to sweep up the hair, you know, clean out the ashtrays. Yeah. If my father and I came back from a fishing trip and we had some fish, she would say, hey, you know, who, who wants some fish? She'd cook it up for some, you know, yeah. anything that made a little bit of extra money for the family. You know, I'd be bummed. I'd catch a big fish, and I wouldn't even be able to eat it. It would go to a customer. <laughs> now, now, with, so when you were yeah, very young, when you were twelve, or even as you became a teenager, what did you want to do when you grow up? Did you see yourself kind of in running a SaaS-based business? I, I think my father really instilled in me a sense of self-sufficiency and yeah. independence. So I just knew that I wanted to run my own business. Yeah. You know. So right about the bad all. entrepreneur, did you know, did you have ideas then of, you know, scaling comic books or were you already thinking of? Always something about brand, okay. maybe, you know, something, some kind of an influential kind of brand was always, I don't know if it would be fashion, I didn't know if it would be, you know, a product, Yeah. Uh, but it always had to do with branding and design. 
So then going to college, what was what sort of uh, what schools were you pursuing? What degree uh, I, were you pursuing? I, I studied first. I studied physics at the University of Georgia, and then I transferred to Georgia Tech, and I studied industrial design. I thought I might be a, a car designer one day, um, but this thing called the web uh, came <laughs> out, and I got really fascinated with web design. Okay. Uh, but they didn't teach that at Georgia Tech, so I had to teach myself, and uh, I freelanced on the side. Oh wow! Um, and so I was, um, you know, I, I I worked in this audiovisual lab, the Imagine the Imagine Lab at Georgia Tech, uh, and so we would do three D models and stuff for the architecture students. And then, you know, the graduate students had this event uh, every year. It was like their career fair, where the PhD students would show off their virtual reality projects, and they needed, you know, peons like me to go and click. I would click the presentation, yeah, uh, and then recruiters would come, and you know, big wigs from corporations would come to recruit the PhD. And my job was to just run the show. Yeah. Um, but while I was doing that, I would hustle. I would be, I would be getting side gigs. <laughs> I was, I was basically freelancing and handing out business cards. Right. You know, while I was doing this, and that was where I got my first, my first gig. I got my first freelance gig doing that. So you're because you're looking at web and you're looking at design. So if you right. think about the scale of tech to creative, where do you tend to lean towards? I mean, if you get into industrial design, you're somewhere right in the middle. Okay. I mean, you have to really care about how the thing is manufactured, how it's built, and you also have to worry about how do you make it appealing, make people really want to buy it, right. uh, and make it really usable. And there's a third side of it too. It's how do you sell it? There's a marketing angle to it. Right. Industrial designers have to be sort of a jack of all trades that way. Which is perfect for an entrepreneur, obviously. Absolutely. Now, uh, I'd love to get, uh, spend a little bit of time on, on creative culture or innovative culture, because for mm -hmm. me, it's something that fascinates me with, um, with MailChimp, and I just think it's inspiration yeah. for many companies and many people. Um, and, you know, we were talking earlier, but there's a quote from some uh, prior interviews where you said, people, not companies, are creative. Right. Which I just love. So talk about that, how you think about creativity in a company, knowing that people yeah. have to be creative. How do you drive that? Oh, it's, uh, uh, that's my secret. I'm not telling anybody. Uh, <laughs> it really is. I mean, people talk about it like it's a company thing. We want a creative company. Yeah. And they just sort of, and they, they think about what is the process then to, to get that creativity. But it really is about the people. You have to create an environment where people can be creative. And it's really, creativity is like, you're opportunistic, you're yeah. adaptive, you're sort of, you know, it's sort of a Jackson Pollock thing. You spill stuff everywhere and, ooh, that's art. Right. Uh, we can make something out of that. That kind of opportunism, it only can be fostered in a certain kind of environment. You know, if it's oppressive, if people are ex afraid to experiment or tinker, you're not going to get creativity. So for me, it's about people really feeling confident, feeling bold to speak up and try new things. That's a, that's a tough kind of environment to foster. How do you... Uh just hired leaders, because uh, you're, you're at a point where you're scaling, so you can't, yeah. you know, I, I'm sure you'd love to interact with every employee at MailChimp, and right. I'm sure you make efforts, but it's impossible to be there every minute, so how do you get leaders that think like that for you? It's, it's as you scale, it's harder. It's, yeah. It helps to have a great uh, chief culture officer, like Marty Wolf here, right. um, really to sort of screen people and make sure that they're the type of leader who is humble. Um, my co-founder, Dan, would call them humble educators, Hmm. You know, are they really, really good at their craft? Are they, are they really good and opinionated, but so good that they kind of invite criticism? Yeah. You know, like maybe that's a challenge. Like, I'll listen to you. Like, tell me about that. Right. Um, you know, that kind of leader is what we're looking for. 
And uh, you know, one thing I've heard you talk about uh, chaos yeah. is an important part for creativity. So how do you create chaos in a multi-billion dollar company that makes a lot of money? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, for us, it's, it's, it always comes down to this concept of a parts bin. Um, it's, mm. it's, people, it's people constantly tinkering and experimenting. No, we don't really encourage bet the farm kind of bets or gambles or moonshots, nothing like that. We're telling people, just, just make little small experiments. And what do you learn from that? Um, we might not be able to use it at MailChimp right now, but put it in the parts bin. We, we will probably have a use for it later. Make right. sure you socialize it so we all know that it exists. Right. Um, but that's, that's a, I know that sounds a little bit weird, but that's really how we run. Um, and some of them feel like mistakes, and it's okay, because yeah. they were small bets. Nothing was a bet the farm um, situation. Right. So it's, and it's just sort of this freedom to explore and experiment a little bit. So with that, you know, we, we talk about this, this, this really established business and you're creating this, this culture that's unique. Um, and you're making, you're making you know, this is a profitable business, this is not pretend. So what are some other things you do to, to I guess, instill culture? I guess, I guess maybe starting, what does culture even mean to you? Because I think it means so many different things for different companies and people. How do you even think about it at the highest level? And then how do you approach business differently? Oh my gosh. Um, I, I, I remember days, in the early days, as a web design shop, where you're three or four people just struggling to make ends meet, and you've got 20 projects you've got to get done, and it's just not moving. And you think, God, we need better project management. We need better software. <laughs> we need better processes. We need stricter deadlines. Uh, and I, I remember trying that, and I remember how that never worked. Uh, and that has probably scarred me <laughs> for life, those early days. And then, then one day I realized, wait, if people are inspired, and if they actually want to do it, if we just sort of have this culture of just experimentation, and it's really less about me as a manager sort of inflicting deadlines on them, but more about them caring about something really cool that the customer will use, oh my God, they, they beat all the deadlines. They go way faster. Mm -hmm. So to me, culture is sort of um, wind in the sails. Yeah. You know, your strategy is like you're a sailboat. You build your sail, you kind of point it, you want to go that way, but it doesn't mean anything if you don't have the wind uh, to push it. Sometimes you have to change the culture. Sometimes you know business is changing, customers are changing. They don't want to go over here, you need to go over there, but the wind won't take you there and you actually have to change your culture some too. How, how often do you think you've had to pivot your culture or shift your culture maybe over the- Countless times. It yeah. feels like every day you're pruning a little bit. It's like a garden. You're just learning, you know, prune a little bit here, plant a little thing over there. Yeah. yeah you need like a full-time culture officer to do that sort of thing. Is a lot of it, the, the pruning, is it because of the scale of the business as it grows? Is it about the external environment or a little bit of both? What kind of influence is that pruning? It's always about the customer. Okay. What does the market, what does the customer need from you? Yeah. That's gonna tell you, <laughs> your business, you have to serve the customer. Uh, and so if the customer says, you know what, um, the early days of MailChimp when you were small, it was all about you know, this, this great customer service, this hands-on white glove service that we provided. Then they, then they change, they say, really it's about um, a great product. Well, now the culture of your company has mm. to change. It's, it's, about a, it's a product-centric company. And then you grow your product, and then maybe you realize you, know, you expand into different customer segments where some require a hands-on customer service mentality. Right. Like, wait, wait, we need to change our culture yet again. Uh, and if you don't change that culture, uh, it will eat strategy for breakfast. Right. I think people get that quote wrong. They, they think culture is more important. 
than strategy. They're, they're both really important. I think it's more of a, I take it more like a warning than an inspirational right. message. Right. Your, your culture will screw things up if you don't get it right. Right. So you, know, you mentioned the customer changes. So how do you stay close to the customer or make sure MailChimp stays close to the customer, particularly when you have a small business which uh, is like consumers? It's very, you know, there's, yeah. each, each small business is very different. So how do you stay close? You're right. Um, well, we, my, my co-founder, he's our chief customer officer. So he takes the research team out on customer field trips. Yeah. So he's always on the road. He's always flying out there. Uh, you should see some of the pictures of him. He'll, he'll meet at a yoga studio and they're all just sitting on the floor. Uh, he'll meet you know, uh, a different vendor where they're down in the warehouse sitting on crates. Um, and a lot of them, they're small businesses. They don't get attention. You know, we're not serving multi-billion dollar you know, B2B enterprises here. The, a lot of them are like, why are you here? You know, what's the catch? Right. Um, but you know, they let you in and you know, I, I used to go out there a lot too, but you know, Kate and the comms team have done such a good job. I'm on magazines now. <laughs> Everybody knows who I am. Right. Uh, so I can't sneak in. That's what Dan and I like to do. We sneak in and a lot of times they wouldn't know who we are. They just think we're a researcher. Um, and, and Dan still can fly kind of under the radar. And when small businesses, they don't know who you are, they just like lay into you. Mm. Uh, your product sucks, you need to do this, you need to do this. And Dan's just right there, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And sometimes he's slacking it back to our whole company so wow. we can all see what's broken and change it immediately. Uh, and it's always funny, like a month or two later, the most outspoken customers, Dan actually asked them to fly, we fly them into MailChimp headquarters right. to do a panel in front of uh, all of our employees who couldn't travel. And that's when the founder realizes who they were yelling at. <laughs> <laughs> and they usually bring like gifts for Dan. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it is they sell, you know, to be perfect. And Dan blames you. Honey. Yeah. Dan blames you if something's wrong, right? <laughs> yeah. Right, right. <laughs> Right, so we try to instill that in everybody. You know, we say, you know, Mailchimp is a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an endearing, lovable kind of brand. Yeah. And, you know, when people join uh, the company, we tell them you're going to be at conferences, you're going to have a lanyard around your neck, and it's going to say you work at Mailchimp, and people will say, oh my God, I love you guys, I love your brand, and we tell them say thank you first, and then say what sucks, what can we do better, and then we want you to take that comment and immediately slack it uh, for the rest of the company to see. So it just, just always creates this feeling of humility yeah. uh, in the company. So I want to talk a little bit about the future of, you know, with, with the company. Um, and, and first of all, you, you, are a male, you, you, you don't view yourself as a, like the serial entrepreneur just flipping companies. MailChimp is... One's you, enough for me. Yeah, MailChimp is... I still feel like we're just an evolution of my candy business in second grade. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I've just, you know, been pivoting for Oh, you have comic books now with the MailChimp. Yeah, right? yeah, that's right. I, mean, I still yeah. have those, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so uh, but one thing that I think just uh, um, I, I find fascinating is you launched something called Mailchimp Pre Pre Presents. Yeah. So, if you could maybe talk what what that is and and why did you decide to get into the content business effectively? It's yeah, we are in the content business, but I think we've always been in the content business. Okay. You see, most people think of us as just a sort of a, a software company, but we're here to empower. We're here to empower small businesses. Yeah. Um, you know, we want to help them scale out of the kitchen. Um, and so for us, we've been empowering small businesses with software, but also with content. Uh, and back in my day, it was blogs, you know, blogs and email newsletters is how we put out our content. Right. We have uh, younger, brighter, smarter staff that's saying, Ben, it's, it's a video. <laughs> <laughs> and so we've been producing great, great content. A lot of it is, um, 
you know, I think that only the MailChimp brand can get away with the kind of content that we're publishing, right? Mm. Uh, I think most businesses, if you see them do content, it's, it's almost like case studies of their customers. They somehow have to show some kind of connection or some ROI right. to their business. If you look at some of our content, you'd wonder like, how are you making money off of this? But really, we know what it's like to be an entrepreneur. We right. know their struggles. And the content that we're putting out is like, you know, second chances in life. How do you know when to hold on? How do you know when to just give up? Those are struggles entrepreneurs face all right. the time. Uh, and so we're put publishing stuff like that. I, my father, he's almost 80. I just visited him over the mm. weekend out in the country. And he told me his old buddy from the army just wrote him an email. And he asked like, are you doing content now, Ben? <laughs> I was like, how do you know about that, dad? And he was like, yeah, my buddy loves it. And he's been showing some of it at his church. Oh, wow. Like, what? what are you showing at your church? Because I know our content. I don't think that's... <laughs> so I have no idea what they're showing, but it's, it's evidently really inspiring to a bunch of people. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is incredibly brand-centric. So talk a little bit about, you know, even MailChimp, Freddie, MailChimp. How, how did that come about? Being oh. the kind of the... Oh, my parents, my, my father was in the military. He met my mother in Thailand during yeah. the Vietnam War. And um, he lived with her and they, they had a pet monkey. Okay. And they would talk about this pet monkey when I was growing up. And their lesson was always, it, was, it always ended with, never have a pet monkey. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so I just grew up with stories of monkeys all the time. And I just was always fascinated by them. Yeah. And, uh, and um, you know, when we were a web design agency, we realized people really love monkeys, no matter where, no matter how stodgy and corporate the client was. You know the deal, you do like three or four mock-ups and you let them choose, but you're really hoping they choose the one. You have your favorite. Yeah. We found that if you put a monkey in it, like a stock photo with a monkey, they would always laugh and then pick that one. <laughs> and so, you know, we would always say, yeah, you know, put a monkey on it. You know, that was how you always won. Uh, and so the monkeys were always uh, our thing. Yeah. Uh, and so when we started MailChimp, we were actually going to call it Chimp Mail, and that domain was taken. <laughs> uh, and then so we had to flip it, call it MailChimp. Yeah. And, you know. The rest is history. It's, it's been weird. I tried to kill it actually at one point, really? thinking we had to be corporate. Um, I had just hired some new people. They, they joined. My first two full-time hires were a designer uh, and a developer. Uh, and I said, welcome. First order of business is we should probably get rid of this uh, chimpanzee mascot. Right. And they said, whoa, whoa, this, that's why we joined. You know, wow. That was the whole reason we quit our jobs and joined this company. And then I said, well, I have I can't afford to lose you two, so I'll make you <laughs> I, yeah, take it to another level. So that moment, that's an interesting uh, point in, this, in your journey as a leader. Either there's a point you thought we had to be a little bit more corporate, that's even right. in our name. What, what yeah. was the, kind of the dynamics that caused you to think that? Was it just the scale? Or? Well, I think it's, it's what every small business owner goes through. You have your passion, you know, like I'm the one who developed that chimpanzee and yeah. the, the monkey humor, all of that stuff. And then that's actually you building a brand, right. right? And you're just comfortable when you're sort of like in your safe space doing that. And then for some reason, when you look outside at customers, you think, oh, now I need to be corporate and put my business hat on. Yeah. And then you get stodgy. Um, that's, everyone goes through that. Uh, and I was susceptible to that as well. How do you, as you, as you continue to grow and get bigger and scale and more people, one, how do you stay inspired? And two, how do you stay purposeful? Because it's so much, as we talk here, I mean, MailChimp is just incredibly 
brand-centric, yeah. customer-centric, design-centric company, and so much that you could hear coming from your background. Yeah. So how do you make sure you maintain that over the next 10, 20 years? I mean, the purposeful side of it comes yeah. from what I told you about earlier. I've seen what it's like when there is no purpose. Yeah. Nobody's inspired, nobody gets anything done. You have to just keep cracking a whip and you have to instill mm. deadlines and process. You still need that. Right. Um, you still need the project management and all that stuff. But man, inspiration and purpose is like extra tailwind. It right. just pushes you way faster. So, I, you know, it's, it's not like I'm a good, kind-hearted soul. <laughs> I just know what it's like when you don't have that. So you always have to have that purpose. And, you know, this is what everyone's looking for. It's a sense of purpose and fulfillment. Yeah. Um, you can get it in a few different ways. Um, meaningful work is one of them. Yeah. It feels like it's our job to always make sure there's some tough challenge ahead, something really meaningful and meaty for people to work on, yeah. keep people busy. Because we, even with all this fun and, and, and Freddie and everything, yeah. it, is a, it is a, I mean, you're, yeah. you have some pretty full days at MailChimp, yeah. I imagine, for, for your team. Yeah. And being purposefully yeah, driven absolutely. and so forth, yeah. yeah. So, so Les, I wanna, wanna um, maybe kind of change gears a little bit and maybe as we learn a little bit more about you and uh, some okay. questions, nothing, it, 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 hardly anything to do with MailChimp or business, and oh, just some, okay. some random quick questions. But, and we'll keep it quick unless it's really interesting, then maybe we'll dive in. But, <laughs> all right, so what's your favorite food? Oh, that's not that easy. <laughs> that's I'm perfect. Torn. You know, I grew up with an you know, American dad and a Thai mother. I love Asian food, but she yeah. was part Thai, part Vietnamese, so even then I can't decide. Yeah, um, and you grew up in rural anything Georgia with noodles. too. Anything with noodles, I love it. Yeah. Perfect. Sorry? And you grew up in rural Georgia too, I which probably had a Georgia. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so some good southern food down there. Yeah. 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 Uh, so what's your favorite restaurant then? I know that'll make it even harder oh, here, especially here. I, I like um, Empire State South a okay. lot, but I also love a little hot pot called Tasty Twenty One on Buford Highway. Excellent. Yeah, that was my little secret hideout. Favorite place to vacation or just get away? Uh, Lincolnton, Georgia, with my dad. Really? Little country Very good. home. Yeah, out on the lake. Ex very good. Yeah. So what makes you mad? Or what's your pet peeve? However you want to describe it. What just kind of gets you going? I don't know. Not a lot makes me angry. I'm, uh, I'm happy you didn't I say stay, this interview. I think I, I, think I, stay, <laughs> I, think I stay pretty, pretty calm and level-headed. Yeah. I think I get mad when I see really uh, young, motivated, like really hopeful employees who want to make a difference and then a leader who just doesn't have the time to be transparent with them, really mm. sit them down and explain why. Why are we doing this? If I hear them say, you know, it, you don't worry about that, just do your tasks. Yeah. I, I get pretty furious about that. Yeah. 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 So what, what, how about uh, similar, but a little different here. What makes you sad? Sad? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, you know, times in the past where, you know, maybe someone uh, I didn't listen to hard enough, maybe someone that maybe we spread too thin uh, and just really couldn't grow mm -hmm. inside of MailChimp and left. I always want, I always want to keep people. I mean, it's healthy right. for people to leave your company. It's healthy for them and everything. But I always, you know, that's always, it's always sad yeah. uh, to see them go. Yeah. 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 I heard some, some, I watched some documentary about bars and cocktails and stuff. It was on the plane. And I th I, he said something like, the, the most important customer is the one you lost. Hmm. You know? Yeah. And that's, that's something to me. It's like, the most important employee is, that's the one you lost. Like, I always want to hear, why did they go? What can we do better? 
Interesting. Yeah. That's that's the kind of stuff that keeps me up at night. Well, then this is this could kind of connect to that, and this is actually two parts. What habit of yours drives your coworkers crazy? And the second so you part, ask them, your family yeah. crazy. We'll see if there's the same or not. Um, I, yeah, I'm a, I'm a creative person at heart. Yep. Um, Marty made me take a Berkman personality test. <laughs> <laughs> so it told me uh, <laughs> that I am, I get bored easily. Right. Yeah, when you're running a large organization, you kind of need to let processes bake for a while. And sometimes I'll, I'll get something started, it's extremely important. You know, it'll take me months to get it going, and then next day, it's gone. I, I have no idea. I forgot. I'm on to the next thing. I'm thinking about 2025 now. Right. Um, and then somebody will give me an update, and I'll say, what, what are you doing again? <laughs> What's that? Uh, and so I've just, I'm sort of impatient about things, right. and moving on to the next idea. I change my mind sometimes. A little too frequently. I'm sure they love that. That'll drive people crazy. I'm sure they absolutely love that. (laughs) But I'm sure you could. Now, from a leadership, to dive in a little bit, that's probably part of the structure you had to create around you, I would imagine. Put in place some good, stable people. Yeah, very good. (laughs) Buffer from then. Now, now, um, how about with your family? Uh, Well, you know, my kids, they're, you know, 12 and 8. Yeah. Uh, The 12-year-old, you know, I could do no harm, but recently... I'm, I'm starting to see I'm annoying him in some ways, yeah. I, I haven't really pinned down what it is, but I can see that he's annoyed by me. I have Tina, it's going to last a while. <laughs> it's going to so last it's a while. Now, right? that, yeah, that, you, you got a while. Just, just find your inspiration. Yeah. And <laughs> find your purpose and you'll be right. fine. <laughs> What's your favorite movie? And it doesn't have to be on MailChimp Presents. It could be yeah. on any platform. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, like, um, I like There Will Be Blood. I like that one. I think that's an entrepreneurial story. I think that's somebody who had to build a business no matter what. Yeah. Uh, and he went crazy doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Not foreshadowing. <laughs> no, okay, okay, just make no. sure. <laughs> what about your favorite book? My favorite book? Yeah. Um, I like I like Man's Search for Meaning. Okay. Victor Frankl. Yeah. It's a good one. What's uh What's kind of what really draws you to that? I mean, he, 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 I mean, it's an amazing story. Has anyone here read, are you familiar with this? It's, it's, um, it's moving. I mean, he, he had this idea, you know, about happiness and what, what motivates people. Um, mm. he, this was his study. This was his field of, I think maybe he was a psychiatrist or psychologist. I, I don't remember the details. Yeah. But um, then World War II happened. The Nazis put him in a concentration camp, took his wife, took his uh, family. And, you know, he could have given up. But he found purpose in his detainment. Yeah. Um, and he, he emerged from that with a new sense of purpose and with this conclusion that people find meaning, you know, in basically three ways. Yeah. One, like uh, through a mother's uh, unconditional love for a child, uh, through, I guess, like prevailing through or finding meaning in some kind of sickness. Uh, and the wow. third is meaningful work. Uh, wow. Yeah, so that, that's, that's kind of stuff, like, really. That's fantastic. Yeah, I, I re- if you're a founder of a business, I very I highly recommend Great. reading that. Great, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and what is that? Do you have a, a hobby, like, to, to just get away? I like cycling. Yeah? Yeah. You get to do it quite a bit? Mountain or? biking, road biking. You know, yeah. I'm not a snob about it. I'll do either one. Okay. Uh, yeah. Very good. Do you bike to work? I don't back to work. Oh, I, I don't know, I know the distance. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. I'm scared of the traffic and everyone texting. It was one of the yeah. things, right? You know, we mentioned a little bit about MailChimp, just 
fantastic what you do to enable you know the, the bicyclists. You have a whole yeah. room there. Yeah, we moved to Pont City Market because we have so many cyclists. Yeah. And the promise was that they had these bike racks out front and they would have a bike valet. Yeah. But so many of them, our employees used it. We overwhelmed the system. <laughs> uh, and they asked us to please build our own bike room. Uh, <laughs> so we did buy a little extra space and we built our own like bike rack, bike rack room with lockers and everything. So we have a lot, yeah. a lot of employees who walk bike. Was it something like 30% of our employees use some kind of wow. alternative transportation? Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. So we're going to open up for questions here in a second. So, so please get ready. Do, uh, as, we, as they get their great questions ready, uh, um, comment or something you've mentioned before, which is uh, do what you love versus love what you do. No, oh, I say. Or was it that I said that? Love what you do. Love what you do. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yep, yeah. So, so talk love. a little bit about uh, who that is because, cause, and I think the essence of it is many people say, you know, work in something that you love or, 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 or yeah. how do you think about that? I, I know a lot of, you know, young people who are just chasing after their passions and that's nice. Yeah. But first I think you need to spend some time just building your craft, loving what you do for now. Yeah. You never know. I mean, my passion was automotive design. And if I had chased that, I don't know where I'd be right now. Nobody drives anymore. <laughs> um, right. You know, kids don't care about cars anymore when I talk to them. Um, not when there's Uber and Lyft and everything. Right. Um, so I, you know, I just, I got a job in appliance design and then banner ad design. And I could have turned my nose at banner ads. Who wants to do that? Right. But I really learned how to influence people online and make them click things they might not otherwise click. So, I mean, I just, I just didn't get, um, you know, snooty about it at all. I just said, you know what? I'm a banner ad designer. I'm going to learn everything I can about it and embrace it and do the best I can. Yeah. Uh, and that just evolved into uh, CEO of a SaaS company. So I think it's, if people just sort of spend a little bit of time just, just learning what they're doing, building their craft, it'll turn into their passion. Yeah, and, and, and I think, you know, kind of, kind of building on that from, you know, seeing MailChimp and our discussion here, so much of you is in MailChimp. And so, so much of what you love, your passion, you could see right. it. So it seems like there's a way that you could you know, it's not car design, right? But yet, it's still you in there it's still too. Still me, right? Absolutely, right. So, uh, so what questions do we have? And uh, we have the microphone. Hey, Ben. Hey. Uh, what, what's the so now that you've become very influential, you know, in the space, um, and certainly have a voice in the arena? What change would you like to see in the industry? What change would I like? I, I sort of feel like, who am I uh, to say what change I would like to see? Um, but, you know, if, if, if I had some kind of choice, I would say, you know, can we have more of a shift towards a more conscious capitalism, mm. maybe care more about our stakeholders like customers, like our employees? There's usually a third one in there, your investors. We don't have that third, uh, <laughs> you know, stakeholder. But, you know, a little bit more care about finding purposeful work for employees. Um, I, would, I would love for that kind of movement to take hold. Yeah. So as you've scaled, in some ways, your role's gotten much bigger, covers of magazines and things. In some ways, your role probably gotten smaller. You're not doing everything anymore, like maybe at the beginning. True. So as you've scaled, what's your unique superpower now that you can provide the MailChimp that nobody else can give? I, I, my superpower now is really, uh, one might say, you know, you're a multiplier. You can get people at the table and just get everyone to let it all out and then synthesize it and turn it into action. But I have a, I have a better way of saying it. I, my, my 
Tom, my chief marketing officer, he says, let's, let's get the turd on the table. Everybody wants <laughs> to put the turd on the table. Yeah, so I, I'm pretty good at that. Uh, <laughs> I, have a, uh, I have a gag gift that I bought on Amazon. It's a plastic turd. And if you come into my office and you sit down at the, the round table and I put the turd in the middle, you know it's going to be that kind of meeting. Uh, <laughs> and you know, you can make everyone gather around, resolve their differences and move on. It's like a, an evolution, you know, like the early years, I was really good at craft. I loved building things and coding and designing. I wanted to be sort of this Renaissance man, jack of all trades kind of a thing. And then you, it's just natural to, to age and want to spread that and pass it on. And it's more about connecting people. I mean, it's just sort of, I'm glad that we evolved the way that we did and grew organically so that the businesses could sort of age with me. I haven't had a problem with that evolution that I hear some people talk about. Tell us a little bit about how your leadership team has evolved, how you've selected them, and what kind of skills you're looking for. Uh, so I look for people who are really good at what they do, they're philosophical, but they can teach. Uh, they can sort of uh, raise employees up, but also um, we serve small businesses, and small businesses need to learn uh, leadership and uh, business as well, so I need leaders who can, you know, uh, teach it. Uh, to a small business owner. And so, like when I interview uh, leaders, you know, um, sometimes I'll do my, I'll do my Southern drawl, you know, <laughs> and, you know and, they'll, and they'll talk about whatever it is that they're great at, finance, whatever, marketing. And I'll say, no, I don't really understand that one. Go back and explain that one. And you just sort of see if they're willing to do it or not. And if they're just too good to, to dumb it down for you, then you're not gonna work at MailChimp. What made you stick with small business after all this time? now that you've grown to such a big company and all the resources you have? Yeah. I mean, it's in our heart, right? I grew up in a small business family, and so did Dan. Uh, I didn't talk about this earlier, but Dan's father ran a bakery, also a kitchen business. Uh, and, you know, he remembers waking up early and helping his father, you know, knead the dough and make the pretzels and everything. And then Wonder Bread moved in and decimated their business, and they had to move. Father had a heart attack and died away, died. And, um, you know, with mine, it was the same thing. You know, it was a great watching my mother grow the small business in our kitchen. My sister went off and grew a salon, very successful. Um, brought toys home for me every month. Uh, she, she was really ins inspiring for me to become an entrepreneur. And then she had a falling out with her business partners. And so for her, her business went away just like that, too. So for Dan and I both, it's, it's all about empowering. You know, we have a culture of empowerment at MailChimp. So we're here to help small businesses scale out of that kitchen. You know, it's very meaningful for us. That's not the same with enterprise, you know? Enterprise, they've got billions of dollars. For them, marketing is a, an investment. They'll say, oh, we're gonna spend hundreds of thousands of dollars every month. It's a done deal. Uh, that's kind of nice, but with a small business, it's, it's like $50. You know, and if they spend fifty dollars on Mailchimp, they might not be able to spend fifty dollars on a chair. You know, uh, it's it's a bigger struggle. It's a bigger challenge with small business. It's more fun for me. Uh, the design uh, problem solving is is I think harder with small business. You have to really prove that you're good. You know, with small business, they can change on a dime because they're spending fifty bucks. You know, they can switch to a new vendor overnight. Um, and also, you know, it's just good business. I mean, in, in the world of business. We say, you know, there are two mountains. You want to be the king of the mountain of one of these mountains. There's Enterprise Mountain and there's Small Business Mountain. We want to be king of the mountain on that one. There's no medium business mountain. That's Death Valley to us. Uh, 
you know, medium businesses um, have the ambition of enterprise and the budget of small business. That's a tough clientele to satisfy. So it's just sound business uh, to stay in small business and um, just our passion as well. And Ben, it seems like too in small business that it's been a segment that's been largely ignored. Right. And, and it seems like with what you're doing and some other companies out there like a cabbage and so forth that there's some people starting to pay deliberate attention. But would you say it's been really ignored for it's, forever? It's been sort of a blue ocean for a very long time. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of uh, attention. Yeah. More competitors are coming to that space. And it seems like the brand equity, this, you know, when people say, what's the ROI on doing content or whatever, it's that trust right. you're building with the small business owner, right. I would say, right? Right. We, we, you know, MailChimp, our mascot, he's winking because we're saying we get you. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, Ben, a, a huge a paid member of the platform. So hey, thank you. <laughs> I really enjoy what you're doing. Um, quick question. So as a successful founder, I, I'm building a community for people 40 plus with their personal growth, professional growth. So I'm curious, what advice would you give someone who's at that mid-career stage, just looking to start a business, but they're stuck and they have all this experience in life, but now they're looking to reinvent themselves and they want to start a business based on something that they're passionate about, but also that they have the expertise as a successful founder, what advice would you give someone if they're 40 plus, but you want to start something, what will be the first thing that you would recommend that they do? My goodness. I've known a lot of people like that. They, they've mm. sort of developed some experience over the years in the corporate world, and then they start something new, and then they try to apply that, and it doesn't work, because uh, that stuff works after you've hit product market fit. I think I would say prepare for many long nights <laughs> uh, <laughs> prepare to cry, <laughs> prepare, you know, when, just when you think it, think it couldn't get worse, it's going to get worse. Uh, it's going to be like a storm and you're going to be at the front of the ship just holding on for survival. Nothing's going to work at first. But that's the point. You need to be, you know, it's like if they, they probably worked at a company. I've met people like this and they, there's a playbook for that company. Right. And they, they, they're going to search for a playbook. And the whole point is you're inventing a new playbook. It's not there. If you build a successful brand, it's because it's different. By definition, no playbook. Yeah. Get, they need to get that out of their head. <laughs> hey, Jeff. To, uh, Two-parter for you. Um, as you look back to when the dot-com bust happened and you were let go and then thrust you into being this entrepreneur, what would have happened had that company survived and you had stayed there for three or four mm -hmm. more years? And then... Yeah. Second part is, um, when are you going to write your book, which I would suggest the title of Cigarette Smoke and Hairspray. <laughs> yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> perfect. Oh, gosh. Um, the, that first question, you know, when, when we were laid off, it was, it was scary. Um, but I had a great boss. Her name was Cindy Gray. Uh, and she prepped me for it. She actually told me two weeks ahead of time. She was like, where it is, company's going down. So I actually had two weeks to think about it. Uh, I will forever be grateful to her for that. Um, so I could sort of plan. I got clients. I walked down the hall, knocked on doors, and I pitched. And I got two paying gigs before I was laid off. Um, the company that laid us off, Cox, um, it's a good company. They offered me a really good management job uh, back in the mothership. I'll forever be grateful for that, too. Um, but I felt like this was my one opportunity. It's hard to, to quit. You know, a lot of people look at me and they think, oh, you're courageous. You went out and did your own thing. I got laid off. Uh, <laughs> and I just thought that was the kick in the pants. I knew that if I didn't try it, 
then I would probably be maybe a vice president someday. And that's perfectly fine, but for me, always I wanted to run my own thing. That was what I felt like I was kind of raised to do. Uh, the book, I don't know, I don't, I, I don't have the attention span. <laughs> <laughs> so, because you have this risk tolerance that you could take. And we start building your teams, your leaders, your, your organization. Yeah. How do you, what do you want to instill in them in terms of taking risk? And, um, and or, or what's the balance you seek in terms of, uh, uh, you know, wanting to have maybe less risk tolerant people in your organization? I think, I, I don't think about the risks too much. Yeah. I think about just people's ability to embrace change and chaos. Yeah. I just look for adaptability. Right. I try not to think too much about the risks. Yeah. Well, then final question here. Um, so uh, you're a father of two, correct? Yeah. Correct? So, um, and young, and you know, you're going to the fun years. You know, the next five to six, five to seven years. So, if you think as they as they become, you know, adults and start their own lives, what lessons do you want to kind of impart on them that will kind of last the rest of their lives? I, you know, it's. I think that they're on their own journey. Yeah. I am not here to to guide them in any way on their journeys. I want them to find their own way. I'm here to prepare them for the road ahead. Um, when you get success, it's, it's tempting to prepare the road for them. Right. Right. <laughs> so I'm just preparing them for the road. Um, I think, I always think about what I should say to my kids. Um, what kind of wisdom can I impart on them? And then I realize it's, they're watching. They just look at what you do. Yeah. And so w what I hope they see me doing is I'm constantly talking about serving, just serving customers. Yeah. Uh, if they see me on a call and it's, you know, a budget call and I'm talking about finance and they say, what's that all about? I'll say, oh, customers, serving customers. Yeah. <laughs> I just want them to see me busy. Um, I just, when I think back, think back at my father, I would, he was always reading. Uh, and that's me. I'm always reading too. You just sort of copy. You right. mimic what you see your parents doing. That's so, fantastic. I mean, I just hope that they see me serving. That's fantastic. all. Being useful. <laughs> well, well that's, that's, that's marvelous, and um, so thank you, Ben. Uh, this has been a great conversation. Um, for those of you, um, hopefully you learned some about Ben, hopefully you learned about MailChimp, one of the great companies, and you know, I think as we look at the landscape of great businesses around uh, the country, uh, MailChimp is definitely gonna be one of those brands we will continue to see grow. So Ben, co-founder and CEO of MailChimp, thank you for being on the Disruptor Studio. That was Ben Chestnut, filmed live at the end of 2019 on the Disruptor Studio. And I think you'll agree that as you listen to the conversation with Ben, you hear his authenticity, his creative spark, his visionary drive, and everything that makes him a leader that inspires innovation, transformation, and greatness. This live edition of the Disruptor Studio was produced by Highwire Group in association with Dagger and hosted live by Dragon Army as well. And it was also made possible by 352 and the Metro Atlanta Chamber. Make sure you keep listening to the Disruptor Studio as we have new guests every two weeks and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. I'm Alex Gonzalez. Thank you for listening. <laughs>